restart. Be Real is brought to you by the California College of the Arts MFA in Writing. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can write and paint, write and design, write and make a film. Oh yeah, you can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel The Dakota Winters out in December from Echo, and their alum and podcast favorite Adam Nemet's novel We Can Save Us All out now from Unnamed Press. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Welcome one and all to Be Real. We are a genre-hopping, movie-reviewing and reappraising podcast. So excited to be on theplaylist.net for the first time today, this episode. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And here with a frosty LaCroix, I'm Noah Ballard. Hi, Noah Ballard. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm overjoyed to be uh to have this show on the playlist today um so before we talk about the films of william goldman and rest assured we will talk about the films of william goldman um let's just introduce ourselves super briefly uh we've been doing this show be real for three and a half years 110 episodes um we are a genre hopping show so every show we group movies together by a particular subgenre or subcategory and talk about uh three and then some larger topic because of it we've interviewed people like gus van sant deborah Granick, and paul dano uh and mostly we've spent 110 episodes exploring film and yelling be real at each other when we disagree back and forth is that a fair characterization and i'm noah ballard <laughs> I forgot to, you know, I'm myself, I'm a freelance film critic, but Noah is actually a wind-up toy based in Brooklyn, New York, and he's only got the one catchphrase, so this should be a really fun, epi- this should be a really fun episode. That's absolutely um, true. Noah, tell people about yourself super briefly. I'm a literary agent here in New York City, working with writers of literary fiction and some narrative nonfiction, uh, of whom we've had a few on the podcast to lend their expertise, and I imagine we'll have more in the future. Uh, but I'm—that's right. that's where I'm sort of coming at movies from—is the sort of the literary side of things, how scripts are written, how narratives are constructed. That's kind of what interests me. I feel like you're like mainstream film criticism, and then I come in with my like hot and like not very thoughtful uh, takes on things that bother me. Yeah, guys, I'm trying to be a mainstream film critic here out of Portland, Oregon. Um, I also edit and copy edit quite a bit and host a show, a music show for Oregon Public Broadcasting. Um, So if you don't like the audio, you can blame me, not the literary agent. Uh, But we also just have to say again, thank you so much to the wonderful people at theplaylist.net for having us. Uh, Henceforth, you can hear us on the Playlist Podcast Network, which features some other wonderful shows that I love, uh, including some by some Portland pals, Adjust Your Tracking, the Over Under Movie Podcast, Indie Beat, and others. You can subscribe on SoundCloud or your podcatcher of choice, uh, and you can find it uh, find us there going forward. And if for some remote reason you decide you like us, you can find old episodes at BeRealPodcast.com. But going forward, we'll be plugging that Playlist.net and the Playlist Podcast Network. So... Yeah, well, that, I'm so excited that we get to contribute to the essentials sort of feature that the playlist has and to focus on William Goldman, an interesting guy, both for me and 
as a, like a literary person and for you chance as a, a film person yeah a titan of screenwriting uh to name just a few or the three main titles we'll discuss today as part of this sort of essentials feature are the three for which he's probably best known butch cassidy and the sundance kid all the president's men and the princess bride uh but uh, a titan of 20th century screenwriting and also um kind of editorializing about the film world and novels and his observations in Hollywood. And of course we're doing this because he passed away at uh, the age of 87 on November the 16th. But, uh, but yeah, if you don't know William Goldman, you assuredly know his work and that's what we're going to get into today. And chance you did a, even a deeper dive on some of his movies to you. Just for this playlist one, I think you went for extra credit. So I wanted extra credit since we're, some people are meeting us for the first time. We should also mention, too, that Marissa Martinelli from Slate is coming up to give us a bit more insight into the book upon which The Princess Bride is based. Of course, right. both written by William Goldman, but The Princess Bride sort of fakely written under an S. Morgenstern pseudonym. That's right. So, so to kind of trace the arc of his career a little bit before we zoom into specific movies... Um, he came out of writing novels in the 60s. He was a novelist before he ever dreamed of writing screenplays um, and then kind of picked it up with movies like Harper and very quickly Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, um, which sold, I think he sold the screenplay for $400,000. Yeah, which was like at the time a record. And then just an unbelievable run through the 70s with Great Waldo Pepper and The Hot Rock and All the President's Men and Marathon Man um, where he was just the biggest screenwriter on the planet. Yeah, and what I find so interesting now, too, is that, like, of course, his movies are some real, like, American classics, but there are still at least three, if not many more, I didn't research each single book, but three books that are still very much in print at Random mm-hmm. House, at Houghton Mifflin, um, and at Grand Central. And, so, like, I reached out to most of these places, and I asked, like... Can you give me, like, you know, William Goldman just died and we're doing a podcast about him. Like, what can you say? And all these publicists were like, he's a pretty major part of our publishing program. None of us here ever met him, uh, but he gives us a <laughs> brings in a lot of money. You did get a hold of his agent over email, though, did you not? I did. I got a very frosty email from... <laughs> Esther Newberg from ICM, who is a legend in her own right, and that she responded at all uh, was incredibly generous. Um, But yeah, so I had asked her what was the secret or like what was the thing behind the fact that what I think is pretty impressive about him is that he adapted most of his work in a move that I don't think you saw a ton before or after. Mm Mm-hmm. Goldman did it of being like, well, I wrote this book. I'm going to write this screenplay, of course, because most people like try that and strike out pretty hard, I would say. Yeah, or the movie industry just really doesn't like it. Right. But Goldman made it work. So I asked Esther Newberg like why she thought like that happened. And she's told me that it was as simple. It was as simple as that he insisted on doing the adaptation and he was good at it. Yep. And then she was like, there were often too many cooks working on the movie side, and that was a frustration for him. And I've been trying to like think about what that means, and I feel like we'll get into that somewhat when we talk about the directors that he collaborated with. Did you want to talk about like other 
people who are comparable but kind of not comparable? The only other people that come to mind are, you know, like your F. Scott Fitzgerald or your Dashiell Hammetts or like uh, Michael Crichton or something. But the weird thing about William Goldman is like I think he was far more successful than any of those other writers crossing over to the film world, yet I think he's the least famous. And Goldman never confined himself to a genre like those other people either. Like, the the linking theme in these movies we're going to talk about today and a lot of his other work is just that they are um, American film from a pretty doggone good age of American film, and he's very good at writing kind of like charming but flawed men, and he's very good at writing when like two people are talking to each other like these are the commonalities that we can kind of come up with like two two men usually on a mission is a is a common theme in in goldman work yeah no i love but that But that's not that's not like um writing the novels that that's not like writing 25 courtroom novels it's way yeah. different for like our genre grouping purposes or yeah or like your average stephen king like the dog is haunted the house is haunted the mother the is, haunted. is haunted that's cujo <laughs> Yeah, and then so to just to kind of fill you in, like, after that run of work in the 70s, in the 80s, specifically after the movie Magic, which we're going to talk about just a little bit later, uh, he does kind of wander in the wilderness for a while, uh, trying to get Princess Bride adapted. He begins writing very influential kind of cultural criticisms slash just industry storytelling with, like, adventures of the screen trade. Um, other people have eulogized Goldman really well uh, since his passing. People like Bill Simmons. Um, have, And a lot of the people over at The Ringer have just been like, this is a guy who's kind of conversational, um, star-interested, greatness-interested, pop-culture-interested writing was super inspirational to a lot of what we see today. Like, any time from you to me to Bill Simmons is just like, that was a, you know, he had a pretty great eight-year run of work. That's like the way William Goldman thought about movie stars. So, his, yeah. and I read a little bit of Adventure the Screen Trade today. It's, it's, a, it's really fun. It's really easy. And boy, does he just kind of take the piss out of the industry that well, he loves. There's this great quote um, from the reissue of The Princess Bride, which came out about 10 years ago and still sells well for them, allegedly. Um, he says, I ordinarily don't like being on movie sets. I once wrote that the best day of your life is your first day on a movie set. The worst days are the ones that follow. All right. Can we talk about The Princess Bride to get started? <coughs> I brought you a special present. What is it? A book? This is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. I'll try and stay awake. Wesley had no money for marriage, so he packed his few belongings and left the farm to seek his fortune across the sea. Or the land gave Humperdinck the right to choose his bride. The fabric will make the prince suspect the Gildarians have abducted his love. You never say anything about killing anyone. I just happened to look behind us and something is there. He's obviously seen us with the princess and must therefore die. Pick up one of those rocks, get behind the boulder. The minute his head is in view, hit it with the rock! I was not a sportsman that. So Princess Bride... 1987, we're kind of skipping to the middle of his filmography here. It's after that amazing 70s run, and before the 90s, where like his work's not quite as good, but his, 
his presence as like the screenwriter has never loomed higher. This kind of falls right in the middle of that. Um, this is a beloved movie. Is it oh, beloved yeah. by you, Noah Ballard? No. Well, I mean, it wasn't up until when I re-saw it. But I was always one of those, and I feel like Chance, we talked about this a little bit uh, in our shared Google Doc uh, that we're doing the show off of, that we both had this sort of resentment to the, like, precocious young kids who would, like, see Princess Bride for the first time and be like, oh, Princess Bride is my favorite movie. And then, like... You know, you're in the cafeteria. It's like, no, it's not. Like, come <laughs> on. This, that movie looks stupid. We all know your favorite movie is Born Identity, just like me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was also, like, dickish to people in high school who really liked it. And I was like, There's, it's not that good. And they were like, have you seen it? And I wouldn't answer the question. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's neither of us are coming from a true fanship place, but hopefully that's more interesting to listen to than somebody whose favorite movie this is. This movie's always always been great and continues to be great. Good, good. <laughs> you know what else is really good? My mom and my dad and my dog <laughs> that I had. Oh, um, so yeah, don't get offended if we if we talk down on this movie a little bit. We tried to come in with clear eyes and without that uh, adolescent hate in our hearts. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, this was a book that Goldman had written almost 14 years earlier, 1973. It originated as him wanting to write something for his kids. This uh, bedtime story that's pretty symmetrical with the framing device of the movie, which is Grandpa Peter Falk reading to sick grandson Fred Savage. Um, it's a fairy tale that is aware of itself by virtue of the framing device, but like not too aware of itself. And I want to get into that more later. But it starts out with... Uh, Wesley, who's a farm boy played by Carrie Always, serving on the farm of Buttercup, Robin Wright, who orders him around until they realize they love each other in about 45 seconds. And uh, Wesley has to leave, and she believes he's been killed um, by the Dread Pirate Roberts. That's right. Dread Pirate Roberts. People who love this movie are going to hate us. <laughs> um, so <laughs> and in that time, in that time, uh, Prince Hubberdick, played by uh, Chris Sarandon takes the beautiful Buttercup to to be his to be his bride, but they're they're unhappy together until one day, uh, uh, she's Buttercup is kidnapped by uh, Mandy Patinkin playing Inigo Montoya, and and Andre the Giant and Andre the Giant and Wallace and Shawn. Wallace Shawn, yep. Uh, as sort of this pawn to start a war, kind of this like fake Helen of Troy thing. Um, and then they're caught up with by Wesley, and there's this whole reuniting, and this fairy tale plays out. You know, the, this is this is the basic plot of Princess Bride. What do you think of Robin Wright? Can we start there? Sure. Robin Wright, so I she, feel like, is the... Because she ultimately is sort of our guide through this movie. She kind of is. Because um, we don't see was, him being a pirate. No. She was 20 and had, I think been in no movies had certainly had no starring roles when this when this came out um she i think she is wonderful i think that the fact that this movie is in some ways kind of taking on that traditional like fairy tale form she like just kind of like sits quietly for like entire scenes while like other people do bits there are a lot of bits in this movie of which she doesn't really get to take part (laughs) um so that's a little bit curious, but like, I think she's great and I think she's magnetic and I see why William Goldman just like fell in love with her when they were making the movie. 
Carrie Always is also just like stunning in this movie. Um, yeah, he's pretty gorgeous, but uh, and even Mandy Patinkin like could get it. I think <laughs> even Mandy could get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean it's an interesting moment for Goldman too when you think about going from working with like Hoffman Redford, Hoffman Redford, Newman Redford, Hoffman. <laughs> To just all of a sudden being in this movie with, uh, I mean, Patenkin had been in Yentl two years before, but like Elway's, these were not household names other than Andre the Giant. Um, Who didn't even really want to do this movie. Right. So that's, uh, this was like a different, a different look and a kind of a different, I think, level of industry filmmaking that Goldman was taking part in. But I think you hit the nail on the head by bringing up the fact that the casting in this is like really what makes it work. And the fact that it is sort of prescient in the, you're going to literally know all these people if you don't already by the time this movie comes out. That's true. And I I honestly think even the fact that the Inigo Montoya character exists right is kind of straight like it makes the movie feel very like busy and rounded and i think a less ambitious movie just folds all that shit into the wesley character and becomes kind of annoying well you realize pretty quickly that the wesley plot that's sort of driving this movie forward is the least sort of entertaining and right. then you sort of latch on to these supporting characters who in a very i would say william goldman way sort of come and go yeah. You know, as they please. This movie reminds me a lot in structure and in like bits and vignettes of Young Frankenstein. I think that's a good comp. Like there's that scene with Gene Hackman that's like almost identical to that scene with uh Billy. I mean not identical in plot, but the in what it does, identical to the one with Billy Crystal as um Miracle Max. I think the interesting thing about coming to this movie now not watching it as a kid where I would imagine the action and the romance of it all just, I mean, not if you're like Fred Savage, then you don't want it to be a kissing book. But I think you would just be consumed by the actual fairy tale plotting. As an adult, it's I think it's really interesting kind of the high wire act that Goldman is doing between like a, 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 a telling of a story that is self-aware of itself and self-aware of the genre. Like all the names given to things in this book are just like giving funny names to structures, to narrative structures, right? The Pit of Despair is just like what we call the hero and his nader. The Fire Swamp is just like a hokey name for like the thing that cannot be passed. Right. Um, Miracle Max might as well just be Deus Ex Machina. And it's so rare to find that kind of like, that diehard, that princess bride where like the person knows they're in a crazy situation and there are certain things you do and don't do when you've seen a movie before, man. But like, but can still embrace and is willing to take earnestly the action of it all. Like the sword fight between uh, Inigo and Wesley when neither is using his right hand is really compelling at the same time as it's hokey. And that you just don't see that balance hit very much. I think it's good in that sense. No, I totally agree with you. And I think it's interplay between, you know, sort of the seams of it and how Goldman hides that in sort of this story within a story is clever and is entertaining and is like what we kind of look for in inventiveness when we say like, this is why this should be a movie and not simply a book. What do you think of Rob Reiner as a director? I wrote down in my notes, I found him pretty utilitarian. 
And I think I find him utilitarian in most of his movies. Like he did Spinal Tap, which is just Christopher Guest. He did yeah. When Harry Met Sally, which is just Nora Ephron. Like, and this one's just William Goldman. Like this guy's just like your Jonathan Turtletop, yet he has better writer friends. <laughs> I think he might. Rob Reiner might just have really good taste. One of the things I do sort of, I find curious slash like it about the direction of this movie is, you know, things do look really fake. Oh, sure. But it somehow, like, works okay. Like, the Cliffs of Insanity, that's just a a shower curtain with a sunset painted on it behind right. them. But it it you start to think about it, and you're like, well, this is, a, this is a dream. And nobody thinks about the verisimilitude of the background of their dream. They think about the hero. No, it's, it's a movie that knows it's like a community theater production, but it's like, it's going to be the best community theater production they can be. That's, and Mandy Patinkin definitely wants to be part of that. Right. As charming as some of the low budgetness is of this movie, weren't there kind of moments for you, and maybe I'm off here, but that felt a little, like, almost disingenuous in their, like, kind of hokiness, like, particularly the score, which feels like, it's like synthesizer orchestra and then, like, weirdly a a flamenco guitar like why don't you just do the flamenco guitar you don't need this like bad video game soundtrack to them like running around yeah the score is not my favorite thing here i hear what you're saying and there yeah some of the bits get a little exhausting the wallace sean wine glass thing to me was like Holy shit, how is this going on? People talk about that as like incredible screenwriting, but I found it unbelievably boring. Right. That was where the person watching with me, the third member, you know, one of the third members of this podcast, Sarah, the woman with whom I'm in a monogamous long term relationship, like kind of half woke up and was like, I don't get this, (laughs) (laughs) and then fell back asleep. Um, And I felt she was right to point that out. Probably. I was not, like, incredibly taken with it. I think there there are some, like, really interesting kind of gold mini lines, though, that I latched onto, though. Like, there's not a lot of money in revenge, in the revenge trade. Um, right. Or, uh, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. These are, these are like, very interesting screenwriting flexes for a right. movie where, like, people... And it's like, and then they were in love. Right. <laughs> I like the... Uh... We are men of action. Lies do not become us. Like, there's some great writing in here. The inconceivable thing is a little bit on the nose. You also have to give credit to My Name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die is like one of the best phrases in movies. Or at least one of the most quotable movie phrases that there are. Let's talk about the reception of this movie before we angle our way to a rating here. Sure. Um... Most people, I would imagine, I mean, it has high marks on Metacritic, on Rotten Tomatoes, on IMDb. Yeah. But one of my favorite things to do when we review a movie chance is find a review that just fucking hated it. (laughs) And this time was Pauline Kael from The New Yorker who said, this movie is ungainly. You can almost see the chalk marks it's not hitting, but it has a loose, likable shabbiness. I don't know if I'm that far away from that, minus the the sternness. But I think that I, I think she doesn't see a certain intentionality that I do. Yeah, that's probably true. Or doesn't care. Yeah. Or doesn't yeah, care. Yeah, I have to imagine that the two groups of 
people when it comes to Princess Bride are people who loved it growing up and people who watch it too late in life and don't like it as much. I, I don't think there is that group of people who watched it growing up and they're like, I hate that. <laughs> I think- Do you know who I think also might hate this movie is uh, one Liam Neeson, who... This is a good bit. Share the bit. <laughs> Liam Neeson revealed on the Graham Norton show in 2007 that he auditioned for Fezzik, the role played famously by Andre the Giant, and director Rob Reiner scoffed when he heard Neeson's height was only six foot four. Do you think it was Liam Neeson hearing these charges against his manliness or his physical stature that was like, give me the gray? <laughs> Maybe. Give me I wonder- taken. I mean, I know he's long dead, but what about Andre the Giant and Widows? Right. I couldn't save us. I had to save me. <laughs> That's a pretty good uh, Andre the Giant doing. I don't think it was. <laughs> Viola Davis's crooked husband. Okay. Um, so, guys, we don't have a ton of traditions on Be Real if you're new to the show, other than screaming Be Real at each other. Um, but one of them is we have a special system for movies when we review or reapproach them. And now. Let's explain that system to you. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good, good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad, bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicolas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad, bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or awards bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I think this movie is... A soft good good. Mm-hmm. I think like it's well made in that sort of hokey community theater shabbiness. 
you know, that we were talking about, but it, it makes for entertaining viewing. It's an entertaining movie at worst. And I think that, yeah, there's not anything crazy about it that I would, that is unpalatable either. So I, I think it's, it's a good, good. Yeah. When you break it down by our rating system, um, for first time listeners, like that, that first half is like, is there thought, craft, intentionality? And I think there's enough for it to be a good, not a bad in that category. And then the other half is sort of, you know, sheer animal entertainment that, that Chen that can you put your finger on? Did you like it? Did, did it, did, it How did you, you just say Je ne sais quoi? Je ne sais, je, je, je ne sais quoi? God, you're such a pseudo intellectual chance. I prefer, let's go with the French. Let's say faux intellectual. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, would I watch this movie again? Happily. I might not watch it every year at Christmas with my family like some people, but I'd watch it again. So, yeah, um, I will also give it a good good. Now, folks, Noah talked a little bit about uh, the novel of it all when it came to Princess Bride a bit earlier. So why don't we get into that with someone who wrote so well about it uh, in kind of summing up Goldman's career with regard to this movie. Slate's Marissa Martinelli is coming up. Be Real is brought to you by Converse College Low Residency MFA. Their two-year program features biannual residencies that nurture writers of fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and YA, guiding them from first draft to publication. Converse has launched emerging writers like memoirist Sunel Barnes, novelist Sonia Condit, and award-winning poet Lisa Hayes Jackson. Visit converse.edu MFA for more information. Converse College Low Residency MFA. Your next book lives here. Okay, Marissa, so I really think everyone should go read your piece about William Goldman's book version of The Princess Bride uh, that later inspired the movie, because I I think there's a lot there that people, myself included, probably don't know. Um, But one of the things you initially do in the piece is explain how the, the Peter Falk, Fred Savage framing device from the movie is is just so much more complicated in the book. There's an imagined version of Goldman. There's a lineage of reading this book in his family. There's a fictional son he never had. There's quarreling with his wife about the fake author of the book, The Princess Bride, that he's reading. Uh, so to get us going, what's your favorite flourish of kind of the story within a story deepening in the novel? Oh, gosh. Well, the frame story is almost too complicated to fit into a single uh, article on Slate because I would have to reproduce almost the entirety of The Princess Bride. So Goldman writes in the first person in The Princess Bride. So there's this, there's the real William Goldman, or there was the real William Goldman, um, who was a novelist and screenwriter. And he writes the book in the first person as a man named William Goldman, who was also a novelist and screenwriter. But he populates his life with all of these fictional details that you mentioned and then peppers it with just enough real details from his actual career that the line is blurred. So he alludes to working with Stephen King. He alludes to the work that he's done already in Hollywood. It's very intricately bound. But then he's also writing his main story, The Princess Bride, about this kind of fairy tale kingdom as though it is being written by another author, S. Morgenstern, who never existed. He's not real. 
He hails from a country called Florin, which obviously doesn't exist, although it sounds plausibly like it could be a European country tucked next to, like, San Marino. Um, And to make it as complicated as possible, Morgenstern's book, this fake Morgenstern who doesn't exist, is itself supposedly based on actual historical events that took place in this country Uh that does not exist called Florin. (laughs) So you have Goldman, who himself is a master of adaptation, writing a book about adapting a work that has already been based on history. It's just, it's so elaborate. It's exhausting. But it's also one of the most entertaining novels I've ever read. Exhausting, but entertaining. Um, So clearly, none of that part makes it into the movie. But I was curious, like, if... If it had, which is, you know, antithetical to your piece and how good he was at adapting himself, what kind of movie are we looking at? Um, Is it like Lord of the Rings meets adaptation or something? I've thought about this, and I think if, well, Goldman's skill as someone who would adapt work, whether it was his own, because he also adapted his novel Marathon Man, uh, he wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, loosely based on actual history, He had a real knack for knowing what to omit. And when, you know, especially he had a a great knack for dialogue specifically. So he also knew when to throw something in. And so I think what he did with The Princess Bride is he axed all of that because there's enough meat to the story, The Princess Bride, that he didn't really need. You know, I'm William Goldman and here's how I came across this and I had to cut 70 pages for this reason. Uh, but he did manage to work a lot of that in with the frame story in the movie, which is very simply a father, a grandfather, I should say, reading this to a sick grandson. I think if a different screenwriter had tried to adapt The Princess Bride today, if it were like a 13-episode Netflix series, it would be incredibly complicated and actually, I think, would do rather well. Uh, for today's sensibilities. I mean, The Princess Bride, not only is it very meta, it also it doesn't have the happy ending that it necessarily does in the movie. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Rob Reiner version of The Princess Bride, Wesley and Buttercup get away. They have shared this lovely kiss. The grandfather closes the book. He says... That's the end. And then the kid asks him to read it again. And the grandfather says, as you wish, uh, which is the very sentimental repeated line. The book doesn't really have that kind of closure. In the book, uh, they escape, but they're on the run still. And I think that's a very like 2018 flourish. That's how the first season of Netflix series would end. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably a good call. And people probably would like a a little bit of the the tortured artist, I bet. Yeah. so, but you can't do that in a you know an hour and a half movie. No, it's impractical. Not. Well, and this is this was the other thing I was wondering, having not read the book myself, Marissa. Um, is it? It's at five hundred pages and featuring uh, lessons on on how to abridge work. Is it a children's book? How did you, when how and when did you first come across it? So I saw the movie when I was a kid. Uh, as many of us do. I was at a friend's house, and we couldn't have been more than seven or eight. She's the youngest of six kids, and so they had just a wall of VHS tapes. We watched the movie, and her older sister was with us. And her older sister's only like four or five years older, so she was in her like a preteen. Yeah. But when you're her kid, you think that's ancient sure. and that <laughs> older kids know everything. Yeah. So 
we watched the movie and afterward her sister Barbie said to well it was a book first and the author had to cut all of this stuff about like packing hats and <laughs> he's having all these legal problems with the estate of this author of the original and I was a kid but I was a bookworm and I was outraged that this work had been censored so <laughs> egregiously uh-huh and then I forgot all about it. I mean, the movie is really, it, it's great for kids. It's fun for adults. But other than the rodents of unusual size, which are terrifying, uh, it's really a kid-friendly story. It's a, it's a fairy tale. And I forgot all about the, that there was a book until I was actually doing summer reading for, it was the summer before high school, and I was looking for a copy of Lord of the Flies by William Golding. Ah, <laughs> And I was at the bookstore and I saw this book, The Princess Bride, and it was William Goldman. And I had loved the movie so much that I figured, let me get it. I hadn't forgotten what Barbie told me that, you know, there was this elaborate stuff. But within, I don't know that I knew that it was satirical, um, but there were things that definitely tipped me off. Like at 14, even, I kind of knew there was no country called Florin. And I was like, what's up with that? Uh, but it's so well done and so compelling. And this alternate world that Goldman creates, not just the world of Florin and Gilder, but the world of his own life is convincing. And so I, I don't fault Barbie for falling for it. There you go. Well, see, and you raise a point I want to get into, which is like, how do you, what's your take on how the book and the movie use self-awareness because I had actually never seen it. I watched it for the first time for this podcast and then tried not to say anything too mean that would crush people's childhood affection for it. Um, but oh no. I know. I, no, and I, and I didn't have anything really mean to say. Um, okay. But I was struck Forgiven. by, um, um, you know, it breaks a lot of the, you know, the show don't tell rules. Like he, he gives names to plot devices, basically like pit of despair, cliffs of insanity. Um, immediately naming the fact that what Wesley is really saying is that he loves Buttercup. Um, so there is that, like, there's that keen sense of, I know what I'm doing here, and you know what I'm doing here. But it, it somehow, like, doesn't get in the way. What's your take mm -hmm. on how he uses self-awareness? Uh, I think that the framing device is is designed to do exactly that, and so it's hard to be annoyed about that. You're being told a story and that's Goldman having his cake and eating it too, where, I mean, the book itself is full of interjections from Goldman saying, I cut this for this reason, and here's what Morgenstern had to say about it, and here's what a professor of history from Columbia had to say about it, who specializes in Florinese history and tradition, which, of course, none of those people are real. And... Uh, so in that respect, the interjections from the grandfather, like there's a scene where they're in danger and the grandfather interrupts and the picture actually freezes on the screen. And he says, you know, oh, Buttercup does not get eaten at this time. And then we cut back to the grandfather and the grandson and the grandson's like, what? Kind of like the viewer. Uh, like it's it's funny and it's irreverent in a way that really captures Goldman's prose without actually inserting him as a character. I think it does a great job. I'm a I'm a big fan of this movie. Mm -hmm. There's another S. Morgan Stern book, right? The Silent Gondoliers. Do you know about this? I do. I haven't read it, though. I, I certainly have not either. I just found out about its existence kind of researching to 
to talk to you today. Um, what do you feel like Goldman got from, do you feel like this indulgence sort of like delighted him or like having this kind of this other like writer who's not him, but who he could kind of like take the piss out of sometimes, but also like use to, you know, write something that's like not as high stakes as a $400,000 Butch Cassidy, a Sundance kid script. What do you, what do you make of like what the, like these, this couple of things, this S Morgan Stern phase of his career might've like done for him as a creative person. Any thoughts? I think there's two, it's twofold. So on one hand, Creating X Mor- S. Morgan Stern allows Goldman to get into the nitty gritty of adaptation. It lets him, he, I mean, he's talking in the book about his frustration trying to adapt this work by Morgan Stern. And in turn, Morgan Stern's own frustration with adapting historical events. You know, what is too sacred to omit? What can you change? What are the, is the studio or your editor demanding be put in? Um, so that's one advantage. The other is that, and I, I think of this specifically because Goldman wrote or started to write, or maybe never intended to finish, who knows, a sequel to The Princess Bride right. called Buttercup's Baby, also by S. Morgan Stern, also supposedly that Goldman was going to adapt. And he released a sample chapter in one of the anniversary editions of The Princess Bride, uh, you know, and supposedly it was being held up for legal reasons and a dispute with Stephen King, who is of Florinese descent, apparently. Um, But he did write one chapter, and I just reread it very recently, and there's at one point where there's a long passage about Inigo Montoya falling in love and his backstory, and then Goldman interrupts the text to say, I don't know why... Morgan Stern put this in here. It doesn't really, nothing happens. My editor didn't like it. He didn't want me to include it, but I put it in anyway. And that, I don't want to say it's a cop-out because it's a lovely passage about a character who deserves as much backstory as we can get. But it's also like a cheeky way to say, well, if you don't like this part, I didn't write it. So mind your own business. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Just creating some, some distance for sure. Um, well, Marissa, I'll, I'll wrap up with this one, uh, in the, in the episode surrounding our conversation here, we, we've tried a few different ways to kind of remember William Goldman to sum up his career is, is not easy though. It feels like a lot of people remember him for a lot of, um, a lot of different things. So, so how will you, what will you remember him for? I will remember him primarily, I think, uh, through the princess bride And I will use his own words about his book within a book to remember him, which is, it's my favorite book in all the world. That's beautifully said. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Chance. This was fun. Grandpa? Maybe you could come over and read it again to me tomorrow. As you wish. Marissa, that was great. Thank you for saying all those things. We, yeah, we appreciate you being our first uh, guest on a, on, a pl- on a Brought to You by the Playlist show. That's fun. 
Uh, let us forge ahead now to Goldman's first great work, 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Well, we're back in business, boys and girls. Outlaws with style in a class all their own. You know, when I was a kid, I always thought I was going to grow up to be a hero. Don't tell me how to rob a bank. I know how to rob a bank. And anything you ask of me, I'll do, except one thing. I won't watch you die. You just keep thinking that. That's what you're good at. <laughs> Directed by George Roy Hill, based on the American outlaw legends, Butch Cassidy, played here by Paul Newman, and the Sundance Kid, played by Robbie Redford. And the other, of course, George Roy Hill thing you have to point at if you talk the about this movie is The Sting. I love The Sting. It's one of Wait, my favorite movies The Sting's movies before this, yeah? After. After. Three this, years later. The Sting does kind of have like a uh, Finding Forrester to Rich Cassidy and the Sundance Kids uh, Goodwill Hunting. That is such an insult to The Sting. <laughs> Have you seen the sting recently? No, the sting's fantastic. The sting's incredible fucking... in fighting forest. Yeah, I'm just fucking with you. You are my enemy now, dog. That's the... um... <laughs> yeah. But um... this, this, let's just start out up front. What's yeah. Butch Cassidy? What's it about? Right. So it's about the two leaders of an actual outlaw gang in the late 20th, or excuse me, late 19th century. Um, the Hole in the Wall gang. They rob banks. They rob stagecoaches. Like, if you read Gunfighter books growing up, like I did, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were right after Billy the Kid and Jesse James. Oh, The um, Hole in the Wall gang? That was your that was your thing? That was my jam. Amazing. John Wesley Harding, though, I didn't fuck with that. Um, so, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that history looks upon them quite nearly as charmingly <laughs> as this movie does. Um, but this is... This movie is long on charm. Uh, Maybe and just does... long. Oh my. I've, what is it, like an hour and 45 minutes? What's wrong I know, with but you? everyone I was watching it with last night in my apartment all commented, this feels long, hmm. which we'll get to in a little while. But it, I think it's long because it has this very unusual structure of almost, dare I say it, a Buster Scruggs. I don't know if that's true. I think of this movie as just having a two-act structure, which makes it feel long. I disagree, though. I think there's so many, like, there's the scene where they're, like, working with the weird guy who, like, does the payroll at the mine. And there's, there's like, scenes where they're, like, in specific places. And each, like, bank robbery that do is sort of its own little, like, what was, what is the guy from Office Space shot when James Franco's shooting at him? Fan shot. Fan shot. That's right. I think that um, it has these like funny little moments that are so like disconnected seemingly from even two scenes before. Sure. It's so different from the Western. It's like there's the whole like short film of them running away from who they think is this guy, LaForce. Right. Yeah. It's so different from the Westerns that would have led up to it. Uh, you know, from Ford to Hawks to Man to Eastwood, and so different than the westerns that came after. It's it its structure is really interesting. Um, and just was like maybe not replicate. Like I think if you were to give this movie to a studio, 
any other time, anyone not by William Goldman, they'd be like, so what's the big bank? When do they fight LaFours? Right, exactly. <laughs> and Goldman's like, no, they don't do that. This is a, this is like a meditation on what it is to be a legend. And there's either, depending if you ask Noah, there's eight acts. And if you talk to Chance, there's just two. <laughs> and the studio head's like, okay, here's $400,000 to make that kind of roving buddy action movie. I do agree with you, though, that it is a movie about like sort of enshrining one's legacy like they sort of come to the place where they realize their life is unsustainable yeah and they're just trying to sort of retire but retire in a way that's like also badass did you know chance did you remember have we done mall rats on this podcast no i think we have and remember that time i know what movies we've done we never have oh i've seen mall rats um but the, Congratulations. But the bad cop from Mallrats is LaFours. Mm-hmm. I think LaFours is the is the most interesting thing. If you, well, after you've seen this movie a couple times and you've recognized how this is one of the most charming performances by a leading man ever. In, by You're Paul talking about Newman. Paul Newman? Yeah. I am. He's just unbelievable the charm wattage coming off that guy um and also robert redford playing a crab which is like an interesting look for him i mean that dynamic is sort of reversed in uh in the sting um but lafours as sort of this white hatted leader of this like super posse that's chasing them because (laughs) because like you said because times are changing i love that it's like this is like boogie nights for robbing banks um it is kind of like that like where they're entering a world where it's not just you know outlaw versus lawman it's outlaw versus monopolistic capitalism and they will not survive it because Harriman well, the railroad guy will pay well it's it's the end of sort of this like gentleman's class of criminals yeah it's like the whole idea there's that great line in there where butch goes when he's talking about they've just robbed the the like very fortified stagecoach or the very fortified train. Yep. And like they, they're between sort of moments of rest while they're being chased by this posse. He goes, if he just pay me what he's spending to make me stop robbing him, I'd stop robbing him. You probably <laughs> inherited every penny you got. So he sort of like sees his Robin Hood role as like, you've got the money, you inherited it. Just like keep doing your thing and like pay so me off. It? Let me be my part of the system that, like, employs both of us. Let me go back to LaForce for a second, because he's my favorite thing. So you, nobody plays LaForce in this movie. Uh, they never meet LaForce. They never talk to LaForce. But in the end, when scores of Bolivian federales are about to annihilate them <laughs> with rifles, you know, right before they run out and you get that famous last shot of them literally going out guns blazing, they're, they're like, oh, you didn't, you think LaFours is out there? And to, that, to me, that's such an interesting <laughs> last moment that it may, may be funny, it's maybe chuckle-worthy, but is also shows that those two are thinking about the world the same way we think about them. That sort of like, that legend who's just like pressed upon the West, like, is, is he going to be out there? And it's like, guys, you're about to be slaughtered by actual hot metal. But they're thinking about this LaForce character the same way that we think about Butch casting this announced kid. It's such an amazing little twist of screenwriting. That is. That's one of the highest, I think, sort of 
that this movie hits that high peak of like real sort of dramatic irony at the end is an unbelievable feat of screenwriting. Again, balanced against pretty naturalistic, just chummy, like, where are we going next? My leg's falling off, but are we going to go to Australia? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's sort of this interesting couple. And I wanted they to are. talk about this idea of this thruple that they're in. Right, with is, Catherine Ross. With Catherine Ross. Yeah, she plays Etta, who is uh, Sundance's love. But also... And there's this funny line in there where they're sort of... Because she's, like, sleeping with Robert Redford, Sundance. Yeah. But she also, like, has an emotional, romantic involvement with Butch, Paul Newman. Yeah. And there's this one scene where she says something to the effect of, like... Or does he say it? Does Newman say, like... Do you ever think it, if it'd be us who were together if you she met me asks first? him that. But I don't think it really adds any tension to the movie other than, like, once her as, like, a, almost a lucky penny disappears, she's cursed them with this line of, she says, I don't want to watch you die. I'll miss that scene if you don't mind. Beautiful. And, of course, when she exits, they're doomed. And I think waiting for that shoe to drop, waiting for how they treat her to sort of expire in its quality, Mm -hmm. it becomes their undoing is that like almost that they alienated her. Well, yeah, it's interesting because you talked about Robin Wright earlier. I think it's safe to say that like in his long, quite well-written filmography, Goldman didn't write a lot of great women, especially not movies focused on women. Um, but what women, the women characters mean in relationship to the male protagonist was as a rule interesting. Um, so like in terms of how he's aged, like, yeah, these are all very male movies from a very male oriented time in, in, in filmmaking. I mean, just Um, take a look at what William Goldman looked like in the (laughs) sixties through nineties and you'll see, uh, probably Exactly who do you expect for to write a script like this? Yeah. You'll see someone who is hanging out with Paul Newman and James Caan. And with this incredible handlebar mustache. Incredible. Which leads me to the question, Chance. Who do you prefer? Sort of like Silver Fox, like Upper West Side, William Goldman, who he was in maybe the latter 20 years of his life, or sort of the freewheeling mustache of the 60s, 70s, and 80s? I hope you're hopping on Google to answer this question yourself right now, listener. Give me the mustache a thousand times out of a thousand. Interesting. I kind of liked him as the, and now I'm the John Updike of my generation, kind of transcendence into like virile and kind of graying fox. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so before we turn to a rating, what else about this movie? Do we have to get out any other? Oh, you wanted to talk about the famous uh, raindrops are falling on my head scene, I bet. I think much like the Banditos Yankees, the just the abundance of B.J. Thomas, Thomas in this movie is so unwelcome as to almost ruin the movie. <laughs> oh, my God. Have a heart. It's such a jarring... Sort of like, you know from the beginning that Burt Bacharach wrote the score for this. So you're like, okay, Burt Bacharach's involved? Like, there's definitely going to be, like, some singing. And then uh-huh. it, it, it's not there for a while until this, like, whimsical bicycle scene that, like, it's very sort of strange how 
the music is juxtaposed with otherwise like an orchestral Western score. I think it, I think it goes on a while. Um, and that's probably, if it were just raindrops are falling on my head, I think it would be a little easier. But if you're watching this movie in 2018, you're like, wait, and then there's like a kind of like a <laughs> jaunty thing after that song where he does bicycle tricks for 90 seconds. <laughs> It goes on a while. It's hard to... At least to... that sequence isn't, though, the later sequence of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and their girlfriend go to New York City, set to the tune of... It's, what is that? That scene is also so bizarre. Like, this PowerPoint presentation of this early 20th century trip to the New York of Home Alone 2. I think it's one of the only things that's like patently bad about this movie. And you get it because there is the old newsreel framing device and the transitions from sepia. But like that sort of like that montage, it just go, it goes on forever. It doesn't really add anything. It reminds you, yes, of the way this story is being told, but it's not exactly like ducking out to Peter Falk and Fred Savage having a charming conversation, even though that's what it is in this movie. You know, this is why you need like a Rob Reiner to do a William Goldman script because he comes up with a much better transition, I bet. It's true, but I don't think you get some of those like really kind of punchy, poetic moments that George Roy Hill has clearly imagined, like the LaFours and them jumping off the, the, the like the the law enforcement train to the steam whistle is such a like it's now 1907 and you guys are fucked. Um, there are some great directorial moments in what I'm going to now, if you, can I give it please and what I'm going to now say is it, an easy, good, good for me. Um, I, I agree. There are some weird things about this, but like, also you just cannot do better in terms of like buddy banter while still enjoying the action. I like, really love the ways in which, um, they know each other so well, and yet they don't know each other. Them finding out each other's real names. The fact that Sundance... Oh, the joke's on you. I'm from Atlantic City, New Jersey. <laughs> These are, like, really interesting script touches of, like, they know each other very well in this one context. I want to talk about that with Bernstein and Woodward in the next movie. Um, but they're also childish. I love it. You have You have Butch doing voices to try and get that guy to come off the train. You have that great moment of Redford before he reveals he doesn't know how to swim. Newman's like, let's go in the water. Let's go in the water. He's like, no, get off me. I want to fight him. <laughs> Which is something that like an eight-year-old cowboy says. Those two are, they're so, I mean, they don't need me to say it. This is a classic movie, but they are winning and winsome and are to this day. Good, good. Well, I agree with, you and the Writers Guild of America. This is one of the <laughs> 101 greatest scripts ever written. Uh-huh. I will quote to you one William Goldman saying that on a George Roy Hill film, George is the giant ape. Because of his vast talent, his skill at infighting, his personality, he runs the show. And I feel like then it breaks down to just bad directing in some of these weird, campy moments. So I'm going to have to say that while it's a well-made movie, ultimately what it does not add up to is like an entertaining one that doesn't have these sort of like jarring transitions. And... Oh, my God. So I'm going to say good, bad. Oh, my God. Heresy. You should keep listening I mean, to this show, Great folks. screenplay. What? <laughs> like, well done. A good thing for, you know, Goldman's oeuvre. 
but I think George Roy Hill like just didn't quite stick the landing, and he got himself well, a good bat. One of us is always good for some film criticism heresy on this show. Hope you hope, hope the new listeners are enjoying it. Um, before we get into all the president's men, are we? Can we do my extra credit round? Please ask me about the other William Goldman movies I watched for this show. Chance, did you watch any other William Goldman movies? For this show, did you go above and beyond and watch Maverick, Magic, Marathon Man, and Hot Rock? In fact, I did, Noah, and thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> I, so yeah, I wanted to check out some of the later stuff, because William Goldman did not stop making movies after Princess Bride. By making, sorry, I mean writing. Um, he consulted on some very famously, uh, including giving great advice on Silence of the Lambs, giving great advice on Goodwill Hunting. Um, but one of the last sort of like riding it out successful movies he did was 1994's Maverick with Mel Gibson. I think that is a very interestingly put together screenplay because he's basically working off a like a 50s TV show. Um, but Mel Gibson playing Butch and Sundance in one kind of angry and yet childish person does not work at all. So that one I think would probably get um, a kind bad bad in our rating system. Interesting. Yeah, like after IMDb reviewing this pretty quickly, I haven't seen this movie, but it, it sounds like it couldn't possibly hold up if, if only for its like sort of dated looking politics. One of the things we haven't really talked about is that like um, Goldman's scripts benefit from naturalism. Uh, they benefit from somebody who's easygoing even as the stakes are high, and that is not Richard Donner, the director of Maverick. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I think he's good when he creates a sense of realism, even if the premise is hokey. Right, right. But let me ask you this. Was he able to sustain the Anthony Hopkins ventriloquist movie, Magic? <laughs> Magic is, I think, uh, hysterically bad. Um, <laughs> he adapted that from his own novel. I, so he, the thing with this is, like, William Goldman never had, like a like, a collapse from a drug problem. But if he did... It would have been this movie. I read a little bit of the novel and like it changes perspectives without warning and is like totally elliptical and weird. And I think this might have been like the peak of him being like, I can adapt anything. And what it ends up being is like 43 year old Anthony Hopkins playing a 28 year old ventriloquist in a thriller (laughs) where the cart is like careening down the hill and the horse is at the top. The horse being you like wondering about what's going to happen next. Just like scratching its head. (laughs) It's like, uh, Buttercup and uh, what's his right. name? Wesley rolling down the <laughs> yeah. hill. Yeah, but your like interest in the plot like never joins the plot in its rolling down the hill. Interesting. Um, the hot, the rock. hot Rock. I don't even know what the premise is. I know that it's Robert Redford. Yeah, um, this is one that Rodrigo Perez, EIC here at the at the playlist, was like, you should, you guys should check out the Hot Rock, and it's this is like a super charming. Um, like almost like cute heist movie where like they keep trying to steal the same diamond over and over again. Um, and Redford just has these great, you can see why he just loved William Goldman. He just has these great speeches um, where like the whole setup for the heist is like him frustratingly walking away from a meeting and he's like, well, there are locks on the box and that's good, but there's no video surveillance. So that's bad. And he does that like back and forth. Like, Ten times trying to decide whether he's going to do it. Even the B-plus movies in the 70s were better. Uh, and that's what the takeaway from the Hot Rock. Also, incredible Quincy Jones score. Much better than the Princess Pride score. Nice. 
Um, and lastly, I watched Marathon Man, which is fucking tight. That movie's great. Um, yeah. That that movie is sort of like the, you know, Goldman has shown that he can put together like a beautifully sort of conventional script in some of this genre fare, um, but is not quite like into the madness of magic yet. And it's like one of those great movies where if you if you will just be patient and pay attention to the first 20 minutes when you have no idea what's going on, you suddenly realize how everyone is related. And it's Roy Scheider, who I, whom I just love, and uh, Laurence Olivier playing a Nazi. Um, it's fantastic. It's a really good thriller. Cool, man. Well, yep. good on you for going above and beyond. I tried. You, you're good, good. Thanks, friend. All the President's Men? Let's do it. Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. Hoffman. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember... All the President's Men. The story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be in Mr. Colson's office. Who's Charles Colson? Did you know, uh... Howard Hunt. Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work. What do you say? They stumbled into leads. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House transactions are confidential. This whole thing is a cover-up. It's right on our nose. Redford wanted to make this a movie before there was a book. And before Nixon had resigned... He was like following the investigation and got in contact with Woodward and was like, I want to make a movie about like, however this turns out. And I have to imagine that Woodward was like, okay, crazy person. Why don't we? It's such like an we... Oliver Stone move. It is. And Let's I make want... W in the sixth year of George W. Bush's eight year term. So yeah, the screenplay was adapted by Goldman from Woodward and Bernstein's 1974 book of the same name, but he only used the first half which is like another piece of the of the Goldman legend, which is like he could just look at a story and be like, yeah, but where's the movie story? It's not it's not in anything involving Nixon. It's just in you guys slowly cracking this case, following the money. But isn't this a movie story? Like, I almost think that it's not a very conventional movie story the way that Steven Spielberg's far inferior The Post is. Or no, like a right spotlight that. or something where it's like, here's the life of the story. Mm-hmm. Like this one is really just, I don't know. It's framed sort of strangely in the historical, it's not looking at a historical moment. It's looking at like a certain time in these men's lives bef- when they like made a name for themselves, which is again, mm-hmm. like an interesting Bush Cassidy Sundance kid, like, interesting like men doing things and then accomplishing those things it's like they needed to figure out this story they yeah. needed to figure out how like what set up this break-in at the watergate hotel right yeah goldman called it they were charged with you know portraying an instant legend and the way that they do that is through work this is the work that went into this right. um yeah so uh like i said redford plays woodward Dustin Hoffman plays Bernstein. Jason Robards won an Oscar for his role as Ben Bradley. The uh... Definitely better than Tom Hanks in the oh same. God. He's got such a bite to him, Robards. Oh, my, yeah. 
Yeah. And he just, like, he knows how to curse in a way that it's just, like, perfect. Not that any of that matters, but if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. <laughs> right? That's, like, one of the last lines of the movie. Yeah. Because you and I can watch this movie now and have it kind of stand in for how we think about history, right? But sure. I'm fascinated beyond the just sort of, like, um, political parallels to what this moment that we're in the morass of um beyond that if somebody made a like a robert Mueller movie this year or next year i think the odds are like 40 to 1 that i would like it there's no way it would be any good how did they i mean do you think they pulled this off and and if so how it's fascinating to me as we criticize the media and like newspapers especially in this crazy political moment we're in that if you look at the way that these guys break down a story and the hunches they follow and like the sketchy leads that like lead them to something that sort of like is adjacent to the truth like they literally don't know that the story is true as they print it uh-huh like the irresponsibility of that to the idea of the truth or fact is so interesting looking through what I thought was a movie like that was going to be more like in that moralistic sweeping like spotlight. It's not really like Spotlight. It's a movie I think about also you know a an inflection point for journalism. Journalism is changing. What they need is a fourth anonymous source to confirm that what they know is not necessarily 100% true, but is not wrong. And that's but they're what... like playing poker against yeah. this scandal. And they like play these interesting cards of like, well, if I was hypothetically in a situation where I wrote an article that said that whoever was involved with this thing would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Hang up the phone if it's a bad thing. Right. It's fascinating. They did have to gamble. But that's like, that make like it makes sense to me watching this movie why someone on the other side of them would be skeptical of their practices. Sure. It's not, I mean, yeah, it's not full on like hagiography. No. They are, they're, they're hungry. And they're like they need to eat. They need to eat that thing, and that's yeah. the that's what the media is. It's hungry to eat that story. Yeah. It's so interesting to me when you look. It's like it's like me like sipping down every glorious second of like Pod Save America or like uh, New York Times uh, the Daily being like, what does it mean now that Robert <laughs> Mueller has like pulled the plea agreement away from Manafort? It's like tell me, tell me what it means. Yeah. It's like that same kind of thing. You can see that it's coming, and that's like sort of the lack of maybe awareness of that in retrospect is kind of. Sp- it's kind of fun, but also kind of scary. The main thing that Goldman and Alan Pakula, who directed it, have in their arsenal here is a kind of restraint. I would listen to an argument that, like, I think if you threw this on in front of a 13-year-old, they would be like, what? But I also think this movie has a way of making you lean in scene after scene after scene where it's just like there's typewriters going in the background and they're talking about something important and one of them's really stressed out and the other one's like calm down and you just kind of like lean in and they're like, you're like, we got to get Mitchell or like somebody's got to go see Segretti and you kind of under and, and the name Richard Nixon, I don't think is even uttered in the last 
hour and a half of this movie. It's right. unbelievable. There's absolutely no Mark Ruffalo they knew scene. This is just about... It's not about what the story is. It's about the story. Which I think in a from a critical place takes so much um, like guts and trust and taste not to have anybody look at the camera and scream like, we could get Nixon! <laughs> Nobody even comes yes, close exactly. to doing that. Um, there's a great line in here from where they're like walking out of an interview and, and uh, Bernstein says, uh, if you can't talk in specifics, you shouldn't say anything at all. And that's kind of the mantra for this movie. If we're not talking about the details of this thing that we are working on, what are we talking about? Where I think this movie maybe lacks, though, is the fact that they don't talk about anything specific beyond the case, beyond the story. I don't think and there's I, anything that Bernstein and Woodward no. bond over. They never discuss, like, a parent, a girlfriend, anything. They don't have any lives outside of this thing. It's almost like a very long, like, Law & Order episode where it's like, you know these are guys are reporters and they're just going to do their thing and we're never going to go home with them, really. Unless it's to show, like, four empty Chinese food boxes and a McDonald's wrapper. Yeah. I don't know, man. I kind of like that, though. Unless you can pitch me something that would have been, like, perfect. When sure. movies go home with these intense workers, it's just like, and now you can meet his unhappy wife and the unhappy actress who's been pigeonholed into playing his unhappy wife. And I don't want to do that anyway. I just feel like this movie lacks that epilogue that if it's going to be about these characters and them accomplishing their like role in the world, then like don't have that epilogue, you know, set of PowerPoint slides of like, and then Richard Nixon, like here's a shot of a typewriter going out on the wire, you know, with Richard Nixon resigns, like have it be like them. I don't know. They just never have that, that moment where like Rachel McAdams is this great moment in spotlight where she just sort of like breathes at the end where she's like, I can let this go now and showing their intensity. I feel like without showing that release, that 15 minutes, like showing them go back to their apartment and maybe like just survey the room. You're right. Kind of leaves you without that feeling of like, well, what have we accomplished? Like, what do these guys feel about the thing that they've done? That's what's interesting to me, especially with Bernstein. Yeah, who's the one who's constantly being like, I think we've got it. And Woodward has to be like, no, 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 we don't have this verified. You're right. You're right. I think there's a lot of a lot is revealed about them at, in a working relationship. I mean, people have pointed to the greatness of the the first time they collaborate, where uh, Bernstein just grabs his grabs Woodward's first story out of copy desk and is completely rewriting it. And Woodward's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah all right, fine. Yours is better. I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did it." Um, which is tells you so much about them. Um, and as they start to play more like two man game, I think that the 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 way you see them develop as interviewers is fascinating where they'll just kind of sit back on the couch and they'll be look at each other and be like, Oh yeah, we already know it's Porter. And then the person they're interviewing kind of like, can't figure out whether to confirm or deny in this game they're playing. I love when Bernstein goes and visits Segretti and he's just like, yeah, you're a smart guy, Donald. You're really smart. And Donald is not smart at all, but he's telling him exactly what he needs to hear to get this info. Right. They're riveting scenes. I think. But they yeah, are. No, I think it's a the pornography of process here is yeah. unbelievable. Yep. This movie is the exact opposite of Ocean's Eight. <laughs> I think this 
smacks for me a little bit closer to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid than it does to Princess Bride and its its watchability. I know it's a it's like a great movie about like also a great sort of literary thing. So there's this almost like double justice that you imagine has to be paid like as a writer sort of trying to write this script as a dedication to other writers who did something. Yeah. And as a historical document, because it was made both at its time, about its time, I think it's good, bad. You wouldn't throw it on again right away? No, but I'll, like, watch it again and, like, feel good about having sort of surveyed the past in the way I sort of have deluded myself into thinking I'm doing by watching movies from the 70s. (laughs) You're so clear-eyed. I'm going to give it a hearty good good. Um, I think there are some great, again, there's some great just like Goldman lines in here. They were like, oh, were, were CBS news trucks going to burst into their interview with the Jane Alexander character? And Woodward goes, you're both paranoid. She's afraid of John Mitchell and you're afraid of Walter Cronkite. Um, they just, they do have some great patter. Um, oh yeah, actually, when like guys are hanging out in rooms and just like talking about stuff and like nothing is serious. Like, Robards could not care less that their lives are in danger. Right. Um, You know what else is great is that scene with all the editors. And you're, like, watching that, and you're like, where is this going? There are eight men with glasses and bald spots and coffee breath. And, like, where is this going? And then you realize that, like, this is just, like, exhausted people who are going to bullshit. And then once five of them leave the room, they might might break into an earnest discussion about like what this story means and whether they trust the reporters doing it. Um, but you're right. It's just so much of it's just interesting office stuff. The only thing I thought of actually the one time where I think they talk about something that's not the story is when Bernstein is like, you know, kicks Woodward's ass about something and he's got that line. Is there anywhere you don't smoke? <laughs> <laughs> that's so great that he's constantly smoking and like i right. guess it's the 70s so you don't have to ask permission but like he'll just be in people's homes and like lighting up right asking them for cigarettes yeah asking that it's such a but it is like part of his tactic which is yeah. sort of admirable we don't have yeah. to get into this but like i between this and marathon man it's not super fun to watch like dustin hoffman push his way into women's homes um, I don't know why that happened in two William Goldman movies that I watched this week, but gah. so anyway, that's something to deal with as you watch these movies. <laughs> I think, uh, are we good here? Let me just say you must have like, there must've been a moment when like a 10 year old Aaron Sorkin watched this movie. It was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of dollars of unaccounted for cash. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Any comment from Creep? Yes, unavailable for comment. They're not talking. But what else beside the money? Where's the goddamn story? The money's the key to whatever this is. Says who? Deep Throat. Who? Oh, that's uh, Woodward's uh, garage freak. His source in the executive. Garage freak? Jesus, what kind of a crazy fucking story is this? Who did you say? He's on deep background. I call him deep. Let's kind of contextualize William Goldman one more time as we as we send off this episode here. Um, I was interested. I was interested in asking, like, do we feel that there are modern day screenwriters who are at all analogous to him? With his, I mean, he hadn't been writing any good work in the last twenty five years, but. 
Did anybody take up that mantle? I have some people written down. I was curious what you thought. I think people maybe who fashion themselves, like Nick Pizzolatto is definitely like, yeah, I'm the next William Goldman. Look at my mustache. <laughs> you know? And like, yep. what's his name? Philip Meyer, like getting the son on AMC with Pierce Brosnan. It's like, mm-hmm. okay. Let's see if HBO makes a miniseries of American Rust. Right. But I don't, I don't know. Tony Gilroy, does he have novels though? Uh, not that I know of. Gilroy was actually like a mentee of Goldman. That's that's going back. They were friends. Um, Michael Clayton is, I think, one of the best sort of movies of this genre. Rat fucking, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's well said. It's obviously just much harder. You know, Goldman could make could get his Michael Clayton esque script bought up six times in twelve years, and Gilroy cannot do that. Um, so you have these people kind of taking to TV, like even Taylor Sheridan, like took his talents to to Yellowstone, which I haven't seen because I'm not interested in oh God, long, no. long television shows with Kevin Costner. You have but, uh, written down here Gillian Flynn, which I think is an interesting comparison because, like, not only well, because not only Gone Girl like is a huge book, it's also like a pretty huge movie right. that was in like awards conversation the year it came out, and I imagine that same conversation is going to happen again with Widows. Even if she just gets, I imagine she'll get nominated for best adapted screenplay. Right. I feel like my other final thought, and just sort of like you know, it's a feeling, it's feeling some sadness, feeling some nostalgia for like this age gone by because you know he was a chronicler of the sixties and seventies in movies as well as like a participant in it it's just like the history of looking back at american film is picking out your favorite quotes and your favorite lines and we rattled off 20 lines that we just loved uh and our known lines um we didn't even get to things like you're he's a romantic bastard i'll give him that follow the money lines that people actually know um i just worry that we don't or most people don't measure great movies that way anymore they don't think about like what's that iconic What's that iconic line? And that's where it's like, yeah, Goldman is truly is part of a something that maybe has slipped away from us a little bit. And that's sad. You know, these movies that are clever are now more on the margins than are anything seen by a huge population. And that just speaks to our wanting a spectacle more than we want inventive storytelling. Mm-hmm. Just something Goldman himself wrote about and was disenchanted with. So, yeah. We've come full circle. Um, this was fun, though. What a what a load of pretty good movies. Yeah, this has been essentially uh, William Goldman. <laughs> there you go, the Goldman Essentials. Uh, so yeah, the Hot Rock and Marathon Man also uh, really good. I would not check out Magic unless you wanted to see a fascinating uh, train wreck. But um, is it, is it, what if it's is it bad good though? I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's pretty bad bad. <laughs> okay. Um. But man, what a pleasure to talk to you and what a what a fun, ambitious way to to get going in our collaboration with the playlist, man. Yeah. And even if their audience hates us, Chance, I just want you to know that I love you. You do? Yeah. And I like doing this. All right, Sundance. Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy's feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit